you, you want to sing scripture as much as you can. Yeah. And and here we we might share in our singing with the very very early Christian communities that were scattered around the the, the Greco-Roman world. back to another episode of Hymn Partial, the podcast where we talk all things church music. I'm Cara Devereaux. And I'm Anae Funka. And today we're going to have on a very special guest to talk to us about the hymns we find in scripture. Are they really hymns? What do they tell us about Christ? And why do they matter to us today? We'll get to that interview in just a moment. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. We know that the internet is a weird place nowadays. Um, so we want to make sure that our subscribers are able to keep in touch should an algorithm change or um, if for any reason talking about church music gets us kicked off the internet. We don't want big tech to keep us from bringing you your weekly fix of hymn goodness. So please, if you haven't already, then head over to hymnpartial.com where you can sign up for our free weekly news be- newsletter come straight to your inbox um, and we will not spam you and we will not sell your details to anyone. Um, in our weekly newsletter we do include bonus content that you can't find anywhere else. Uh, we will send you links to info about some of the items that we mention in the show and we will send you links to our favourite renditions of whatever hymn that we are talking about this week. So make sure you sign up hymnpartial.com. So we are actually just going to jump right into the interview today. We really enjoyed recording this um, with our guest, and we hope that you enjoy it too. Our guest today hails from the lush lands of Germany, but has been serving and pastoring here in Scotland for the last eight years. He's co-founder of Paracia Books, the guy behind the new edition of the 1689 Confession with Scripture Proofs due out this spring. He is the pastor of Grace Baptist Church Govan, which is in Glasgow, and most importantly, he's the secret third member of our hymn partial family. Ladies and gentlemen, Daniel Funke, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for finally inviting me to take part (laughs) of this great podcast. I thought you would never ask. Yes, well, you know, we have to have, like, very worthy guests on our show, and we thought, eh. Makes sense. (laughs) Yep, we always vet our guests very carefully, so it's a high honour. We're delighted to have you, and Daniel is here to offer us his pastoral point of view while we explore some of the hymns that we find in the New Testament. Correct, correct. So, we're just going to dive in. We hear uh, of a lot in scripture that certain poetic portions were sung, or in this case today, we're looking at hymns in the New Testament. Can you explain to us what identifies something in scripture as a hymn and why this is even significant? Yes. So here's a good starting point. We know that the earliest Christians sang and we know that they sang hymns. And let me give you just a couple of examples of that sort of thing. Here's uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, where Paul says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for uh, building up. Or we could mention Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, 
and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We find something very similar in Colossians. We see singing mentioned in Acts, in the book of Acts and in James. And in fact, we have some very clear examples of hymns in the New Testament in, for example, the infancy narratives in the Gospel of Luke. And then also a few times we see hymns in the book of Revelation. So in, in reading the New Testament, you very quickly and very clearly get the picture that Christians sing. And that same picture emerges even by those who were enemies of the church. Uh, Pliny the Younger, who was a, a powerful man early in the second century, uh, wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan, a Roman emperor at the time. And in that letter, he describes what the early Christians were like. And here's part of what he said about their gatherings. He said, the sum and substance of their fault or error, uh, so he's not, he's not well inclined toward Christians, he speaks of their fault and error, had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. So take all of that together and we have uh, abundant evidence that the early Christians sang hymns and even that there was this bent to sing and to worship Christ in the context of them singing hymns. Now, yeah. today, it's somewhat unique that uh, Christians sing. We don't happen to have a lot of our neighbors uh, just singing. Um, and, and, and so this is unique to us today. But in terms of the cities and places back in New Testament times, where you would find these churches, that is not the case. Uh, singing in a religious context was very normal in the Greco-Roman world. And if you read the Old Testament, you see there that the people of God sang all the time. And we know that is the case in, in Judaism in the first century as well. So it's not a unique starting point, but it's still a good starting point for us to say that the early Christians sang. The question now is, do we find any hymns that, we, that would be used in churches in our New Testament? And a lot of people would say that, yes, we do. But in order to make sense of that question, we need to talk about how the concept of a hymn is a bit different in the ancient world from what it is today. So I know you did an episode on this, but maybe for the sake of summarizing and, and bringing things into remembrance, how would you define a hymn uh, today? What makes something a hymn as opposed to uh, a worship song, etc.? I mean, I'm pretty sure Kara will be able to give a better answer than me. From my understanding, a hymn has more to do with, um, you know, speaking of biblical truths, like singing and praising the Lord based on um, scripture. So it's not a poem. It's meant to be sung. Um, and it should be foundationally biblical. Um, and for the congregation to sing to God in praise. What do you think, Kara? I think you were listening in that episode. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, it is different from poetry. Um, what distinguishes it from just any other songs would be the content, the biblically based content. And then what distinguishes it from just sort of like any old Christian music would be the fact that it is suitable for singing um, as a congregation. So that's the modern definition I would work with. Is it the same in the ancient world? Similar? Well, now, right off the bat, there's some features that you might find with hymns 
uh, today in the ways that you've just described and, and uh, even with hymns in the ancient world, but they're not required in the ancient world. So one of them is meter, which you, you, you didn't really mention just now. You said it's, you know, a hymn is more than a poem, but our hymns still follow a certain set meter, even if that becomes very elaborate at times. Um, and, and, and you don't have to have this controlling meter running throughout hymns in the ancient world. And the other one, uh, the other difference is that back in the day, a hymn didn't need to be sung in order to qualify as a hymn. It may be really? sung, and it often was, but sometimes it was not, but we're still dealing with something that formally would be called a hymn. And the reason this matters is because some people import ideas about, about hymns from today and then go gold digging for them in the New Testament, and they don't find them because they can't discern a meter there in the way that we can find them, for example, in the Homeric hymns. And what's worse, this causes a lot of people to, to find a passage, let's say the so-called Christ hymn in Philippians 2, and in order to make it fit their idea of what a hymn is, they will posit that some part of it is just Paul adding his comments to a hymn that he is, he is quoting. Something like this. I, I, I try to come up with a modern equivalent. Um, think about this. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to die, which is to say Christ's cross I cling. There is this comment I added to explain something. And if you take that away, you have a much more even meter. Everything fits. You can now say, yes, this is clearly part of a song. And it's one that we all know. And, and some people want to take that sort of approach to some of the passages we find in the New Testament so that they can get to the source of a potential hymn. So wait, are you saying that basically folks will look through scripture and if they find something that looks poetic but doesn't fit a particular meter they might just add in their own commentary to explain away the fact that the meter is missing is that me understanding you correctly yeah so they would say that here's material that is being quoted uh, material that is maybe well known in the congregation but maybe something has been added like an explanatory comment or something has been taken away and if we could reconstruct it, so if we could say, yeah, we'd take something away and therefore now it fits a certain uh, meter, then we've come to the original. And that's, that's interesting because that shows a very Western concept of, um, well, hymns and stuff. Because if you think about it, like um, China, I know it's poetry, so it's slightly different, but the whole, the need to rhyme and the need to have like a certain number of syllables in a line, like to have a meter is not actually an international thing. Mm -hmm. Really? Wow. I had no idea. Genuinely had no idea. Yeah. So you would have it in even, even Hebrew poetry and, 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 and Jewish poetry at the time of uh, the time the New Testament was written. And you don't have that as a formal element of what constitutes poetry. Um, you know, having, having this controlling meter running throughout. But people import that idea in an anachronistic way and then try to work out hey, what are we actually dealing with. Now, the reality is that there may or may not be a poem behind some of these passages, but we won't be able to reconstruct them. And every attempt to do so is, is futile from the start because we can't, we can't do it. It's, it's speculation. Uh, and there's a, there's a way to call that in academic circles. This is form criticism, but it's really just entering the land of speculation. And it's not going to bear much fruit for us 
And we as, as Christians today, we can rest assured in the fact that God's word is sufficient. And so we don't need to go beyond and behind the text in the ways that some people are, are trying to do. What is it then? I said a bit about what it's not, but what is it then that we're looking for in a potential hymn in the New Testament? And depending on who you ask, you'll get different answers. But here are some of the common candidates. We might be looking for a slight change in the flow of argument, a different style, different vocabulary, a somewhat different content that might point to the fact that something has been inserted that was originally uh, distinct. So that might point to the fact that someone like Paul is quoting a hymn well known to his readers to underline a point that he was making. A, a lot of preachers, myself included, do that sort of thing even today. Another pointer might be an introductory formula of sorts. So Monet and I just read 1 Timothy 3 this week in our morning devotions. And that's where we find one of these candidates for him in, in verse 16. And there seems to be something of a formulaic sentence before the poetic portion itself, where Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And that word confess there might point to what follows to be a creed or a hymn of sorts. And a lot of other hymn candidates are set up by the use of a relative pronoun, like in Philippians 2 or Colossians 1. So in Colossians 1, for example, and some of our English translations actually obscure that, but the 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 potential hymn there begins with the words who is. So we have that relative pronoun to start it all off, which looks back to the mention of God's son in verse 13. Now, the most significant thing to look for are elements of poetry and hymnody. For example, in 1 Timothy 3, which I've just mentioned, we have the word confess being used to introduce the potential hymn. And then it begins with a relative pronoun. And then there are six lines all beginning with uh, aorist passive indicative verbs for those of you who know Greek. So the same type of verb <laughs> being repeated at the beginning of every line, followed by dative nouns. And in five of the six uh, lines, we would have the preposition N thrown in as well. So we have this really nice parallelism all throughout the six lines. And it's easy for up to pick, uh, it's easy for us to pick up as we read it, even in English. So he says, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That sounds poetic, doesn't it? Now, people have debated whether we truly have hymns that may or may not have been sung in New Testament times. And so we're dealing with plausibility and uh, possibility. And personally, I don't like to speculate. So if you ask me, are there hymns in the New Testament? I would say, I think so. Um, there are very godly and learned men who would make the case for them, but there are also very learned and godly men who would say uh, that this is probably far-fetched. But even then, you will have people say that we might not have hymns, but here are passages that are clearly poetic and passages that show us our magnificent savior. Mm -hmm. And so if you ask about the significance of all this, whether these are hymns or not, is certainly a great historical question, but this discussion should not stand in the way of some of the most wonderful Christological passages that we see in the Bible and us being able to reflect on them. Yeah, and be able to appreciate them whether they're yeah. hymns or not. Yeah, totally. So I think Kara's question, I'm not, I know you touched on a lot of places in terms of where we could find these in the New Testament. I feel like in my mind, I hear people call them just like 
without any qualification. Oh, yes, this is a Christ hymn. Do you find that as well, Cara? Like people be like, oh, yes, this is a Christ hymn in the New Testament. Is it? Yeah, the one that springs first to mind would probably be Philippians 2. Like I've heard sermons where people have been like, oh, yeah, I'm preaching on Philippians 2, the Christ hymn. And like, you know, you know what that means. You know what passage that refers to. But you're also kind of like, how do you know it's like, is it a hymn? Like, yeah. where does that come from? You just said it's a hymn. Yeah. And then you're not going to like, give me anything more on that. Like, yeah. So, I mean, I th- yeah, like I said, I think you did mention some, but you know, where is, where are some other places we could find some of these hymns, um, these Christ hymns that may not be hymns, but possibly were. Yeah. So, like I said, we have some very clear hymns and passages like Luke 1 and 2 and in the book of Revelation. We shouldn't discard them. But in terms of hymns known and maybe sung in in uh, churches, some of the frontrunners that we have are, like you mentioned, Philippians 2, 6 to 11, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, the, the prologue in the Gospel of John, or at least part there of the opening 18 verses. Oh, wow. Um, the opening verses of Hebrews, uh, 1 Timothy 3.16 that we just quoted, uh, 1 Peter 2.21-25. Now again, we're dealing here with potential hymns, possible hymns, maybe plausible hymns. Um, and, and the truth is that some of them have uh, much greater arguments behind them for actually being hymns in New Testament times. Okay, okay. Wow, I feel like you listed so many there. I just want to like crack open the Bible and start reading them all. <laughs> you should you should list them in, yes. in your show notes. Yes, we will. Just in yes. case you're following along, look in the show notes and see these these hymns and, and, and read along with us. Um, there are way more than I thought there were as well. I thought it was like three or four me too. and then you've listed <laughs> off like loads. <laughs> He's like, open the New Testament <laughs> and just read all of them. Yeah. <laughs> So some of them I'm personally convinced of, I would say, I think that's a hymn. Some of them I don't think have strong arguments at all. So yeah. again, th- this is a list of those who are commonly debated. But like Kara said, the main one that people normally go to is Philippians 2. And then also Colossians 1, they're, they're kind of the, the leaders in that race of hymns. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the the question for me is, okay, so... We have a few passages that might be hymns, might have been poems, might have been creeds, you know, in the early church. But what can we learn from these Christ hymns? Why are they, you know, what is the takeaway for us for these hymns? Yeah, we well, we can actually learn a lot. Um, and, and the truth is that some of the deepest, most concise statements about Christ are found in these passages. Uh, we learn about his person. We learn about what what he has done. And time will fail us to look at all the candidates here, but consider Philippians 2. And and, and maybe one of you could actually read that passage um, before we can make some comments on it. Okay, so that's interesting because actually in the version that I'm looking at, this has been indented and it has been formatted as if it's like poetry or at least not normal text. Yeah, let me comment on that briefly before you read it. Depending on the Bible translation you use, and even if you're looking at Greek New Testaments, the editors there sometimes make the decision to say that's a hymn, and they'll and they'll lay it out in verse form. Yeah. And sometimes they don't. So mm-hmm. the the Nestle Island Greek New Testament, I think they lay it Philippians two out as a as a hymn, 
and the Tyndale House Greek New Testament, they don't. And, and you'll see that in English Bible translations and, and Bible translations of other languages, that it's an interpretive decision they make to say, yeah. we think this is a hymn or we don't think it's a hymn. And then depending on that decision, they'll format that passage and other passages hmm. a certain way. Okay, so it looks like verses 6 to 11. Um, but I'll start with 5 with that lead up. Um, statement from Paul. So it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then it begins, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks, Kara. Now... Let, let me just point out that there are a lot of things that formally make this look like a hymn. Uh, its subject matter is bigger and beyond the immediate moral exhortations in verses 1 to 5. We have our relative pronoun in verse 6 to start us off. There's a very poetic way of moving from the pre-incarnate Christ to the incarnation, to his suffering, and then finally to his exaltation. There, there's a parallelism with the verbs throughout this passage and that has led a lot of Bible scholars to conclude that we are certainly dealing here with a hymn. And it was a very influential study by a, a 20th century uh, German scholar named Ernst Lohmeyer. And uh, see, for for everybody who's had to suffer through my poor German, this is proper German. <laughs> yes, yes, Ernst Lohmeyer, that's his name. And uh, and since then, most people writing on Philippians would agree that Paul is using a hymn in his argument here in Philippians. And, and the general argument, I think, is quite strong. What, what, what do you think? Gun to your head. Philippians 2, 6 to 11. Is that a hymn or not? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I, think, I think what I find interesting as you, as you read that, Kara, and even as you talked about it, Daniel, like how often has someone been preaching and in the middle just quoted a hymn? Like it's actually really common and you think like this helps because because we're familiar with the hymn, it helps us like um, connect the things that we sing about to what the pastor is preaching about. And in this case, you know, Paul is driving home like who, who he's talking to. Yeah. Like who he's talking about. Would you say that's correct? Incorrect? Yeah. The, the, the argument would be that, that Paul is describing the, you know, he's just spoken on humility. He's just spoken on, um, you know, sharing the mind of Christ. And so seeing in him an example, and then he's speaking of him, but he goes beyond talking just about the example because he goes on to talk about his death and his exaltation. And so that's why a lot of people would conclude that, okay, there's, it's a bit disjointed, but it's not because Paul doesn't know how to think. It's because Paul is using like he's quoting material here that people might be familiar with. 
that that's essentially the argument. Yeah. I mean, it feels like as I was reading it, I was thinking like this feels like it has some sort of structure. Mm-hmm. It it feels like there is something to this that's there's like a shape to it that's not quite normal. Yeah. Prose. Here's what's interesting. On the back of Lohmeyer's study, which is early on in the 20th century, you have all these studies come out who want to discern a structure of that passage, but they all argue something different. They all come to different <laughs> conclusions as to what the structure actually is, whether it has two parts or three parts or six parts. Uh, wow. Someone has suggested that there are six parts of two lines each, which were sung responsively. Uh, someone maybe singing one line and the rest of the congregation singing the oh. second line. So there's a lot of discussion. Again, it's very speculative. I want to see some of these. It's right. very academic. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's kind of like we have this little thing. Let's just all come up with different theories and, mm-hmm. and speculate and not not throwing any shade on academics, but it's kind of like, okay. <laughs> well, you got to have something to do, so... <laughs> something to fill the yeah. day. <laughs> That's right. It's true. Well, well, let's get back to your to your question. What what can we learn about Christ here? Well, we learn about his preexistence. We learn about his divinity. We learn about the incarnation and his willingness to come and to save his people. Uh, we learn that his obedience stretches so far as uh, to to dying, even the most gruesome and shameful death imaginable, i.e., crucifixion. Um, but, but we learn that's not where the story ends. And so we read about how he is highly exalted. And we learn that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, th- there's a lot here that looks back to passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 45. We have both the highly exalted Lord and a suffering servant and Jesus is both. Yeah. And, 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 and here we have a passage that is truly, as someone has said, an, an Everest, a high peak in the Bible. And, and this would make such a great passage to introduce someone to what the Bible teaches about Christ. Because there's so much in here yeah. in, in so little space. And it's so beautifully put. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually had to write an essay on part of this hymn during university. Ooh. It was... Um, it was interesting. It wasn't about whether it was a hymn. It was about some of the theology contained in mm-hmm. it. Um, but it, it was really interesting. That, well, that's right. Just on that point, the passage has more recently, and by recently, I don't mean the last few weeks, but the last few years and maybe decades, come to the forefront of the discussion of kinetic Christology, whether or not at the incarnation... That was the essay. I, I assumed it was. <laughs> Whether or not Christ <laughs> at the incarnation laid aside his, his divinity, his divine attributes and so oh. forth. And, and that's based there on the line, um, the ESV would put it something like he emptied himself. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, it, it seems like a circular argument because we're talking about scripture. But we often speak on this show about how it's important that hymns have biblical roots because a lot of people get poor theology from hymns with poor theology. You know, (laughs) if they're singing on Sunday about things that aren't true of God, that's what they take away and they build that into their view of who he is. And so how wonderful is it that 
if in fact this passage is a hymn, that the early church was singing about things that were true of God, like so richly true as well, not like a flimsy, like, God, you are good. That is true. No one is good but God. But think about like the layers of theology that's in this short passage that they were singing about. I just find that like a like a confirmation of what we've been saying. <laughs> good theology matters in your hymns. And oh, yeah. Yeah, so. It is interesting, actually, that even in these hymns that are hymns that might be hymns that are in the Bible, it's kind of referring to other scripture too, like you were saying about Isaiah. But I, I have like a further question. Um, what can we learn about the early church itself from these hymns? Is there any lessons there for us? So he, here's an interesting observation. Uh, there are people out there who study the Bible and critique Christianity and they'll say things like, well, your idea of the Trinity, Trinitarian doctrine, um, wasn't around until the fourth century, maybe at the Council of Nicaea when it, when it was formalized. But if you look at these passages, and this is true almost irrespective of whether or not they were actually sung hymns in any congregations. If you look at these passages, they show us some of the highest Christology that we have like in all the Bible. So you look at a passage like Isaiah uh, uh, Philippians 2 rather and you consider that the background here is from Isaiah and there's verbal parallels with the, with the Greek translation of the Old Testament to the, the Greek that Paul is using there and, and, and you look at the context in Isaiah well it's speaking of the Lord it's speaking of Yahweh and, and, and so we have this now applied to Jesus so we have very early on in our first some of our first Christian documents, you know, Philippians and Colossians would, would have probably been written around in the very early 60s AD, um, kind of within a, a generation of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And, and this would be true for a lot of the other hymns that, that we're dealing with. And they display this really, really high Christology. We, we, we know that Jesus is presented here as the Lord and and you know if if we want to follow what we read elsewhere, even outside of Christian sources, it seems that people were singing in worship to Christ and about Christ, uh, something that would be unthinkable in a monotheistic uh, Jewish yeah. background, but something that very clearly gives us the picture that, um, uh, to, to use the language that scholars have used, Jesus is part of the divine identity. And yeah. we have that very early on. Now, if you could prove that we're dealing with hymns that Paul is quoting, uh, you might say, we're not just dealing here with material that was around in the early 60s. You might say, this has been around a lot longer hmm. and reflects an even higher, an, an even earlier, rather not higher, but an even earlier high Christology yeah. than, um, than necessarily it would have been around in the 60s. Okay. Yeah. I think that's interesting because you hear all these objections to, you know, Orthodox Christianity about the things that we believe. And sometimes it feels hard to articulate what the truth is. But, you know, if you just sit back and like you said, you're looking at looking at this passage, you, even if it's not a hymn, even if it's a creed, even if it was, you know, it clearly was referencing or I think clearly referencing something that people would have recognized as Paul mm -hmm. was writing it. 
that means that it was established in some way very early. And yeah, like you said, in a monotheistic religion, yeah. it would have been crazy for them to be talking about Christ the way they were, unless he was who they said that he was. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's really interesting to me. My question would be, so should the church sing these hymns today? Like, what is the relevance for us today in these kind of Christ hymns or these New mm -hmm. Testament poems? Yeah. Well, the, uh, the, the relevance uh, for it begins with these passages being scripture. And, and so the Christ hymn, you know, whether, we're just going to call it that now. <laughs> the Christ hymn in Philippians 2 is, is breathed out by God and, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So maybe that's an obvious point, but it's a point worth making. All of yeah. these passages are relevant to us by virtue of being scripture. And from that, we could go on to say that all scripture is worth singing and that with these passages, we combine the worship of Christ in song, some of the earliest exalted language of who Christ is, and that combines their uh, edification mm -hmm. uh, for us, for the church, with worship of Christ. Mm -hmm. And these passages often go to the cross. They speak of the fact that, um, for example, in, in Colossians 1, Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. And so we see in the personal work of Christ, um, we, we, we see that very clearly that it leads to the worship of Christ. So these hymns are very relevant, very helpful and, and foundational. And, and yes, we should absolutely sing them. Amen to that. Like if it's scripture, it's worth singing. <laughs> We've said it before. Yes. <laughs> um, but with before. that in mind, um, are there actually any arrangements out there that use these passages or are based off these passages that we could start, you know, singing at church for ourselves. Yeah. You, you, you were talking about earlier about, you know, hymns being biblical in the sense of drawing on the scriptures. And, and there are a lot of hymns that draw on passages. Like I keep going back to Philippians too, but uh, for example, at the name of Jesus has one verse, which is just very, very, immediately drawn from uh, Philippians 2. There's a hymn yeah. by a guy named Thomas uh, Cotterill. Which, <laughs> Add <laughs> which him I to may... the list of the funny names that we've uh, heard on this show. Him, right? <laughs> yeah, don't, don't quote me on the, on the pronunciation there. <laughs> uh, but he wrote a hymn, Jesus Exalted Far on High, which, uh, which draws on Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Um, okay. It's uh, when, when you read through it, um, and, and it's in our Christian hymns, hymn books, you'll see just how close it is. He actually rearranges the parts. It's very, very interesting. He begins with where the, where the passage ends with the exaltation of Christ, mm -hmm. um, but, but it draws on it. Uh, what, what I am really excited about is uh, what the Free Church of Scotland has done, for example, I'm sure there are, there are other projects like that as well, where they don't just have a psalter for singing, which we sometimes use in, in, in congregational singing, but they have a book called Sing Scripture. And in that book, you have some of the passages that we discussed and mentioned actually laid out okay. as, as hymns for congregational singing. We are, for better or for worse, very dependent on rhymes and meters 
in in our context. For better. So, <laughs> for better. It, it, it does. It it is it is really helpful. Um, but but there is a project you can find it for free online on the on the Free Church of Scotland website, and you can you can have a browse and see what they've made of Philippians two. You can see what they've made of Colossians uh, one. You can see what they've made of the opening verses of Hebrews, to name a, a couple of examples that would be discussed in academic settings as a potential hymn, in which they've set to music so that that we can sing it. So you you want to sing scripture as much as you can. Yeah. And and here we we might share in our singing with the very very early Christian communities that were scattered around the the, the Greco Roman world. Now one more thing worth mentioning, and and that's something that I was quite excited about when I first found out about it a while back, was that two guys Ross King and Matt Papa yeah. um, have this project called Every Last Word. And what they do there is they set word for word a portion of scripture to song. So it's 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 not really good for congregational singing, but it's good for you to listen and to meditate upon. And even I know you two are memorizing scripture together. If you if you were to say I, w- I want to memorize Philippians uh, two together uh, as an aid to do that, so they've set these word for word from the Christian Standard Bible uh, right. to music. And, and I know they have Philippians 2, 1 to 11, and I know they have Colossians 1, and it's 15 to maybe uh, 23. They go beyond the, the portion that's normally considered a hymn there. But that's very exciting. That is very exciting. So, that, so that's called Every Last Every Word. Every Last Word, yes. Okay, cool. Very cool. Well, I want to just thank you so much for all of the, like, rich information that you gave us today. I feel like we have a lot that uh, we probably wouldn't feel comfortable talking about and don't have the expertise. Definitely not a Greek nerd over here. Um, And so it's always lovely to have like a pastoral perspective, which we hope to have more on this show because we are talking about things of God. We are very comfortable in our place as women, but we do want to be able to teach folks on our show things that are above our pay grade. So it's always nice to have a pastor on, a pastor that we know very well. Um, And hopefully we'll have more on in the future. But before we let you go, we got to ask, what is your favorite hymn? Well, it depends on what you're asking for. Are you asking, (laughs) what's your favorite hymn you find in the New Testament? Or you're asking what's your favorite hymn that you're singing in like a no, church context today? Your favorite, like, oh man, I feel like, you know, singing a hymn today of praise. Like I'm, you're just going to pull up your app and hit play. What's that? What's your favorite hymn? Yeah, like the best hymn ever. So it's one that's a bit obscure. We've, we've sung it quite a bit at, at, uh, at the church here in Glasgow. It's called God, Your Everlasting Light. By, it was written originally by William Cooper. It's in Olney Hymns. So that's the hymn collection written uh, by John Newton and William Cooper. And it was mostly mostly Newton, but Cooper made some fantastic contributions. And, and that's one that's not well known. And one of the uh, blessings that we've had since we've, uh, since we've moved here is uh, Indelible Grace. Mm. And they've... Um, They've said a lot of old, great hymns. Yeah. Some are quite obscure, but they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they sang them to music. 
uh, they set them to music so you can play them on the guitar, for example. And so that's how I originally discovered God, your everlasting light. Yeah. Now it fits what you were saying earlier about it being scripture. It's a paraphrase of Isaiah uh, 60, 15 to 20. And, and that passage is actually picked up in the book of Revelation. So it describes there the, the eternity of God's people in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and it's, absolutely, it's absolutely wonderful mm-hmm. to, to think about what our future entails. And um, may, maybe, maybe that hymn can make it into the weekly email that you sent out. Um, yeah. I, would, I would love for more people to be familiar with and, and aware of that particular hymn. Yes, I could personally attest to it. It's a favorite of ours at our church, and I really enjoy the Indelible Grace arrangement. They've been a blessing to us as a church, and, um, you know, like Daniel said, bringing those old tunes, those old lyrics to new tunes, giving it a little refresher, I think they do a fantastic, fantastic job. Well, as I said, thank you very much for being on the show. Karji, do you have any last thoughts for our our fearless third member? <laughs> no, just to say thanks for all the invisible work you do for Him Partial. And also thank you for being on the podcast today. I've learned a lot and I can't wait to go and look up all these <laughs> passages. I didn't even know were potentially, maybe, maybe not hymns. I would just say to our listeners, um, Dan, as we said before, is the co-founder of a publishing company called Paresia Books, which aim to um, publish good, sound, theo- theological, particularly Baptist books. Um, and you can find out more about their work and support the work there at Paresia Books um, if you want more information or if you want to see what they're getting up to. So thank you so much, Dan, for coming on the show today. It's been a joy. Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. Yeah, that was a great episode. I don't know about you, Monet, but I learned a ton and I'm really excited to go look up those passages, read a little bit more about them. Um, So thank you so much to Dan for coming on the episode and we hope that you learned as much as we did. So we'll be back next week with another episode, but until then, may the Lord bless and keep you. Bye. Bye.